Father, we thank you that because the blood of your son Jesus was shed for us in our place, that we can be called your friends. We can be called your sons and your daughters. We can be forgiven of our sins. We thank you that we can come to him boldly with confidence, knowing that there's no condemnation for us who have called on his name in faith. And we thank you for the promise that there's nothing that can separate us from your love. So Father, as we open your word this morning and as we see what it is you have called us to, the way you've invited us to come to you in prayer, Lord, help us to see the heart that the Father has for his children. Help us to learn what it means to come to you boldly, asking in faith in the name of your son, Jesus. Your word promises us that you are a good father who delights to give your children the kingdom. So Lord, show us today what we need and show us what we should ask. We speak to us now through your word. Will you edify your church and glorify your name? Father, sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth and we submit ourselves to it now. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. And I'm glad to have you here this morning. I invite you to turn with me in your Bible. Matthew chapter 6, we'll be looking together this morning, verses 9 through 15. Um, if you weren't here last week, this is a part two of two where we're studying together the Lord's Prayer. Last week, uh, we saw the first half of this section where Jesus shows us how to pray. And today, we're going to take a closer look at the Lord's Prayer as Jesus shows us what to pray. So uh, for the record, you guys absolutely lucked out this morning. Uh, maybe you're here because you didn't wake up on time. That's fine. We're not judging you. Uh, first service was packed today. It was about 100 degrees warmer in here uh, than it was. A little bit cooler here. So uh, good, good for us this morning. Maybe we'll survive a little better in, in, this, in this gym today. Uh, but, but so glad to have you here. Uh, at Matthew 6, we'll look together verses 9 through 15. Um, when I was in high school, our football team would pray the Lord's Prayer together every single week before we ran out onto the field. And this is, I think, pretty common a lot of, among a lot of sports teams. And I would love to say uh, that this was a deep, meaningful, reverent experience, that we were just a bunch of teenage boys who were zealous for God, right? And we were beseeching his throne before we ran out onto the gridiron for, bat for battle. But it was not at all a deep, intimate, uh, meaningful experience. This is usually something we would do um, after we had spent a lot of time yelling and hyping each other up and cussing before we ran out to play a game. Uh, almost nobody on our team was a Christian. Those of us who were Christians were kind of fake Christians. We weren't walking with the Lord. And, and so I guess our, our aim in praying the Lord's Prayer was that we wanted some sort of divine blessing and intervention, which our team usually needed because we were a slightly below average high school football team. And, and so I guess, I don't know, we were just hoping the Lord would somehow miraculously show up and help us that, that evening. But not at all deep, not at all meaningful. Uh, we would pray it at about 100 miles an hour, I guess yell it at about 100 miles an hour, and, and then we'd run out on the field and, and we'd play. And I think this is pretty common practice among a lot of athletic teams. You know, it's something we do uh, just before we, we go out and we play a game. And yet I wonder how many of us, even as followers of Jesus, Jesus, um, pray the words of the Lord's Prayer without giving much thought to what those words actually mean. Um, how many of us have been guilty of doing what Jesus showed us last week that we should not do, which is praying in vain, which is uh, saying the prayer just to say the prayer, which is vain repetition of his name, or just reciting a prayer so that we can check a box and say that we've prayed. And so as we saw last week, Jesus showed us how to pray, also how not to pray, where not to pray. And what we saw last week in the first part of this section 
is that Jesus taught us to pray humbly. We come to him not in arrogance. We come to him not in pride. We don't come to him to be seen by others. Jesus says we should pray privately. We pray to an audience of one. We don't pray to impress others or to perform in front of anyone else. We should pray thoughtfully. We shouldn't just ramble on, ramble on, ramble on, saying his name over and over and over again, thinking that we somehow make him hear us because of the length of our prayers or the emotion of our prayers, as if we could somehow move him to accomplish our will. And we should also pray confidently. Jesus shows us that our Father is a Father who loves us. He knows what we need before we should ask, so we should boldly come to him and ask. So we saw last week how to pray. Now we're going to look this week in verses 9 through 15 at what to pray. So very simply this morning, what we'll see in the Lord's Prayer is that Jesus teaches us to pray directly to the Father, and he provides us with the model prayer for how we should pray. He provides us with a structure. He provides us with a framework that should frame the way we come to our Heavenly Father in prayer. So we're going to jump right into this this morning. Jesus says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. So prayer, according to Jesus, begins with the recognition of his title. We pray, our Father in heaven. Now, it might surprise you to learn that through the Old Testament, uh, Scripture only refers to God as Father on a couple of occasions. Um, one happens through the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 32.6. He asks the nation of Israel, Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your Father who created you, who made you? And established you. One of my favorite psalms, Psalm 103, Alex Holroyd preached on this psalm not long ago. Verse 13, it says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the, father, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. The Aramaic term was Abba, and it was a word that was used to refer to earthly fathers. Now, I want to clarify this a little bit because um, there's, there's two very different perspectives on this that, that I want to make sure we, we have a balanced understanding here. This word Abba, it can translate as, as more of an informal title like Papa or, or Daddy, but we have to understand that while that was a common word that children used, it was also a word that adults used. And, and so it's not that it's wrong for us to refer to God as Papa or Daddy, but we have to be very, very careful that we don't do is let that become a superficial thing. What we don't want to do in our praying is to lose our reverence because yes, he is our father, but we also have to remember he is in heaven. What we don't want to come before God casually, we shouldn't want to come before him superficially. We don't want to lose reverence for his name. We pray to him, our father in heaven. He's both. He's our father, so it's a familial term of endearment, but he's also in heaven. So we maintain a posture of reverence in all. He's personally imminent. He is our Father, but He is also gloriously transcendent. He's in heaven. And this is, you know, something that I think many of us maybe need to come to grips with today. I would argue that the, probably the number one reason why most people struggle with prayer is because we have yet to understand that prayer is a miracle. We've yet to understand the miracle of prayer. You and I have yet to fully understand. If we're struggling with prayer, I would argue for most of us, it's because we have not yet understood what it means that we get to call the God of the universe Father. The God who is above all things, the omnipresent, omnipotent, all-knowing God of the universe, we have the privilege of calling him Father. The one who spoke the universe into existence, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, the one who at this moment is governing all things, he's the one that we get to call Father. And this is amazing. 
You know, it's, it's hard to discern which is more miraculous. The fact that he is in this moment overseeing every movement in the universe or that he's also present with you and I right now. Both of these things are happening at the same time. Because he is in heaven, because he is God, because he's gloriously transcendent, at this moment, God is overseeing the movement of every subatomic particle on every planet in the deepest unknown recesses of the universe. And because he's father, he knows that the scar on my left knee is from a bike wreck when I was six. He is in heaven and we get to call him father. So we begin our prayer with a recognition of his title. He is our father. He is in heaven. And second, Jesus shows us that we moved into the adoration of his name. We pray to our father in heaven, the first petition, hallowed be your name. The word hallowed basically translates to sanctify. But since God's name is holy and God is already holy, it doesn't mean that we want his name to be holy because it already is. It doesn't have to be made holy. It is already holy. What we're saying whenever we say hallowed be your name is we're expressing a desire for God's name to be reverenced and revered among all nations. That's what we're desiring. Many have called Matthew 6, 9 a missionary prayer because the desire of this, position, of this petition is to see the name of God exalted among the nations. This is the heartbeat of that verse that we say together every single week at the close of our worship gatherings. If you're our guest, we close out our services every week saying the words of Psalm 45, 17. And it's the same heartbeat as Matthew 6, 9. What we say in that verse is, I will cause, what church? Your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the nations will praise you forever and ever. We say this verse every single week because that's a statement of our intent. We're aligning our heart and our desires with God's heart and desire. And what God desires above everything else is the glory of his name. Last week we saw that God is a father who knows what we need before we ask. And we saw that God is eager to give us what we ask for when we ask for the right things. And so I did something very cruel. I left us with two questions and then didn't give us the answer. We're going to come back to it this morning. We had two questions that we left off with last week. If God knows what we need before we ask, and if he's eager to give us what we ask for when we ask for the right things, that should leave us with two questions. What do we need, and for what should we ask? And to answer to those questions is really, really simple. The answer is verses 9 through 15. This is the answer. The prayer is the answer. This is what we need, and this is what we should be asking for. By showing us what to ask for, Jesus is revealing what we need. And when we ask according to what he's revealed, he's eager to give us what we ask. And he teaches us to start out our prayer. That The prayer that God is most eager to answer is here in verse Nine. We can confidently say, hallowed be your name. We can pray these words with confidence because it's certain that God's name is going to be glorified among the nations. You know, one of the most frequently quoted Psalms is Psalm chapter 46, and we usually only quote the first part of it. It says, be still and know that I am God. But what is his reasoning for our being still? This is the second half of the verse. He says, I will be exalted in the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Church, when we pray, hallowed be your name, we can be confident that God is going to grant this request because he has promised that his name will be exalted. He has promised that he's going to do this, so we can pray that with confidence because it's going to be done. So please don't miss this this morning. Our first step in prayer is the agreement with God that his name is great. 
We are agreeing with God that his name is great. And we express our desire for his name to be hallowed, to be seen as great among every man, woman, and child in every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we pray for this because the glory of God is not just God's greatest desire. The glory of God is our greatest need. I want to pause here for a second because I think in our culture it's really easy to to look at something like this and and say that for God to love his own glory, we look at that and we say, man, who, who is this narcissist? That this egotistical God demanding that people give him praise. But here is why it is good for God to love his glory above anything else. Because if God exalted something other than his own glory, it would mean there's something out there that's greater than God, and it would mean that he could no longer be God. We give him glory because he is the greatest good, and he commands us to give him glory because in giving him glory, you and I will find our greatest joy. I hope you understand this morning, God is not sitting in heaven pouting if you didn't sing today. Like he's gonna make it through the day. He's, he's not gonna go like stress eat a big carton of ice cream or anything, nobody likes me. That, that's, that's not coming. God is going to get his glory whether you and I participate or not. But he invites us to give him glory because his glory is the greatest good and when we exalt in the greatest good, friends, we find our greatest joy. He commands us to give him praise because it's for our ultimate good. He commands us to give him praise because in great praising him we find our greatest joy. Now, no human author uh, has helped me understand these things more than John Piper. If you've not read John Piper, you should. I would encourage you to start with maybe Desiring God or uh, Don't Waste Your Life. But this is a reflection from one of his books on pastoral ministry. And he asked this question. I want us to wrestle with this a little bit this morning. He says, why is it important to be stunned by the God-centeredness of God? Listen to this. Because many people are willing to be God-centered as long as they feel that God is man-centered. Let me read that one more time. Many people are willing to be God-centered as long as they feel that God is man-centered. What he's saying there is many of us, we love God as long as God thinks we're the center of the universe. It's contingent on that. So he goes on to say it's a subtle danger. We may think we are centering our lives on God when we're really making him a means to self-esteem. Over against this danger, I urge you to ponder the implications that God loves his glory, listen, more than he loves us, and that this is the foundation of his love for us. So so follow me here for just a second. God is our father. He is our father. And the reason it is good that he is passionate about his own glory, the reason it's good that he's passionate about the reputation of his name is that it means God is not going to let himself have the reputation of being a deadbeat dad. He's gonna love his children. It's because he loves his own glory that you and I can be confident in his love for us. So we pray, hallowed be your name because God's glory is his greatest desire and God's glory is our greatest need. Because God is getting his glory, we can be confident in his love for us because he's not going to let his name be forsaken. So I want to spend a few moments there because every other statement in the Lord's Prayer builds on these foundations. It builds on this foundation of the glory of God being known and exalted among the nations. So if we're praying, hallowed be your name, then what naturally follows is that we would then pray, your kingdom come. So Jesus, as he shows us uh, the adoration of God's name, third, Jesus moves us to a petition for the kingdom. Lord, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. This is what we plead for. 
There's a, a temporal and an eternal aspect of this prayer. And when we pray for the kingdom to come, what we're praying is that God's perfect reign of righteousness and justice would be fully known in our world. That's what we're praying for. For his kingdom to come, we want his righteousness and his justice to be known and practiced in our world. So, so what does this mean practically? Well, this is really what we've seen so far up in the Sermon on the Mount. Like, what does it look like for God's kingdom to come here on earth? We'll just read the Sermon on the Mount. Let's go back a few months. God's kingdom comes when we hunger and thirst for righteousness. God's kingdom comes when we're poor in spirit. God's kingdom comes when we're meek and we're merciful. God's kingdom comes when we're salt and light in a corrupt and dark world. God's kingdom comes when we love our enemies and pray for our persecutors. God's kingdom comes when we share the gospel. God's kingdom comes when we give to the needy. God's kingdom comes when we pursue justice. God's kingdom comes when we right wrongs. God's kingdom comes when we push back against evil. When we do these things, we experience the kingdom. This is what it means to walk the Jesus way. This is life in his kingdom. So those are the temporal aspects of this prayer. When we simply do as Jesus has envisioned in the Sermon on the Mount, we experience the kingdom of God here on earth. But there's also an eternal aspect to this prayer. Because when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we're also pleading for the second coming of Jesus Christ. We are longing and we are praying for the day when this earth as we know it will be no more and the new heavens and the new earth will be established. Your kingdom come has its eyes set on Revelation 21. This is the vision that the Lord gave to John. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Friends, we'd have to be crazy not to pray for that to come. So we pray your kingdom come. We, we pray, we long for this day when the kingdom will, will come. I shared with you uh, last week, a couple weeks ago, I had the opportunity to go visit my dad's graveside. And, and while I was there, I was thinking about this passage from Revelation 21. And just, just think about this for just a moment. One day, friends, Jesus is going to appear. He is going to come. His kingdom, his perfect rule and reign is going to be established on this earth as part of the new heavens and the new earth. And in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no more cemeteries. Cemeteries will be no more. There, there will be no more walks through graveyards. There will be no more headstones with names etched in because we will forever worship the one who overcame the grave. Is that good news to anybody this morning? I'm, I'm a little concerned about this group today. I'm gonna be honest. Y'all don't quite look like you're with me yet. This is good news. We would have to be crazy not to pray for this. We'd have to be crazy not to want to desire this. I turned 35 just a week ago. With each passing year of my life, I long more and more for each day. Like, you know, it happens kind of when you get to your mid-30s. Like, I can injure myself sleeping now. Like, that's a new talent I've developed the last, you know, couple of years. And, 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 and you know, a couple waistline increases over the last several months. You know, stuff like that. Like, I, I long for this, y'all. Two surgeries this year. I'm longing for this. I'm longing for this. I'm eager for this. We should all be. We should pray eagerly your kingdom come. And if we're praying for his kingdom to come, what will naturally follow is our desire for his will to be done. 
So we pray your kingdom come. That's the petition for his kingdom. Fourth, we move to submission to his will. We pray your kingdom come and your will be done. So if you you look closely, the the first section of the Lord's prayer here, we're tracking a a very God-centered emphasis. Okay, so the first elements here, we are Godward in our request on the first half of the Lord's prayer. It is hallowed be whose name? Hallowed be your name, his name. Whose kingdom come? Your kingdom come. Whose will be done? Your will be done. But that's, that's what we're after in this. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. We, in our, in our prayer, we are orienting ourselves Godward. We're remembering who it is that we're praying to, whose kingdom we're a part of, whose will that we want to see established. And throughout Scripture, we see the will of God spoken of in a couple of different ways. The first way, and the simplest way we see God's will spoken of is in God's stated will. Now, you know, sometimes I fear we make discovering the will of God way more mysterious than, than it needs to be. Like, like we make it some Carmen San Diego, like where's Waldo treasure hunt, like mysteriously looking, you know, doing origami with the pages of our Bible. How do I make this work? Like it's a code to unlock. But when the reality is God has, has plainly revealed his will to us in his word. It's always God's will that we walk in obedience to do what he commands. That, that is God's will. God's will for your life today is to do the next thing that he calls you to do. Like that's his will. It's to take the very next step of obedience that he puts in front of you. And so God has revealed his will through his commandments, through his law, through his word, through the things that he's directed his people to do. But scripture also speaks to us of God's sovereign will. And and in a broader sense, this is what God is accomplishing as his plans and his purposes unfold across the timeline of history. So what you and I do is we live daily in obedience to his stated will while we're submitted to his sovereign will. And it's important to understand that his, his stated will and his sovereign will will never contradict. God's sovereign will, if we say that something is God's will for our life, we need to be careful because if we say something that's out of step with his word, then it's not his will. We understand his will through what he's revealed in his word. And as we walk in obedience to his word, he reveals his sovereign will. There's no disobedience in heaven. That's why we pray your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. There's no disobedience in heaven. There's no failure to obey God's commandments in heaven. There's no falling short of God's glory in heaven. There's no forsaking of his word in heaven. There's no denial of his will in heaven. We have to understand prayer is not about moving God to do our will. Prayer is about us being conformed to do the will of God. It's not moving his hand. He's moving ours and moving our hearts and conforming us to his image. And one of the most faithful examples of the perfect submission of the will of God is none other than Jesus himself. What's Jesus doing the night before he goes to the cross? He goes into the garden and he goes off by himself and he prays. He knows the agony of the cross that's coming the very next day. And what's he pray? Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. But he says, but not my will, but whose will? Your will be done. He submits himself to the will of the Father. He submits himself to the will of the Father, and it was his surrender that became our salvation. Because Jesus submitted to the will of the Father, you and I could be saved today. So we submit ourselves to his will. I think a key question all of us should be asking ourselves this morning as we look at the statements of the Lord's Prayer, I just want to ask you just to reflect on your own heart and life and ask yourself a really simple question. Is the trajectory of your life right now is it more thy kingdom come or is it more my kingdom come? 
Are you living a, a life right now that, that says to the Lord, thy will be done? Or are you living a life that says to the Lord, my will be done? And so we orient our hearts, we orient our minds Godward in prayer because otherwise when we come to him with requests, our desires are going to be totally out of order. And what this does is it orients our focus on him. It, it turns our attention to our Father and who he is and his greatness and his abundance and his power. It reminds us that we are not citizens of an earthly kingdom. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. It reminds us that we don't live according to our will. We live according to God's will. And man, especially on an election week, what an important prayer for us, right? Like, like do you, what does it look like for us as, as we participate in these processes, as we have a voice in those who will sit in offices, who will put things into policy, who will put morals into policy? How many of us truly pause to think about both in character and in policy, man, is this going to lead to God's kingdom being experienced? Is this going to lead to his will being done? Does this reflect the righteousness and the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ? It has baffled my mind over the last 10 years how many professing followers of Jesus have functionally ignored their Bibles and their election decisions. Like it blows my mind because we don't know the stated will of God according to his word, we just go guessing at the voting booth. We'll be held accountable for these things. The people that we're supporting, the policies that we're supporting, is this in or out of step with the will of God? Is this in or out of step with the word of God? Friends, we will give account for these things. We'll give account for these things. So we should be praying all week, Lord, we know that regardless of the outcome here, your name is going to be glorified among the nations. We know that the ultimate kingdom is not the United States of America. It's the kingdom of Jesus Christ. But we want to see your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. So help me to participate in such a way that it will lead to your kingdom being experienced and your will being revealed. We'll be held accountable for these things and we should take them all into account. So we live in submission to his will. And when we've properly aligned our hearts and minds to the glory and the kingdom and the will of God, then we can be in the right frame of mind to ask for the right things. And so after we have a Godward emphasis, we move to an inward emphasis. And the fifth emphasis Jesus shows us is on provision for his people. So as we've oriented our minds, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Now we come with our requests. And Jesus teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Now the picture that quickly comes to mind here is God's provision for his people when they were freed from slavery in Egypt and they wandered in the wilderness each day the Father provided for their needs in the desert. He rained down manna from heaven, and the people were instructed to take only what they needed for that specific day. And so we learn a couple of things about this request that Jesus has taught us to pray. First, it shows us that the Lord, as our Heavenly Father, He's not just concerned for our spiritual needs, He is concerned for our physical needs. He is a good Father who cares for the needs of His children, and we as His children should trust Him to care for our needs. Now, sometimes this is a part of the Lord's Prayer that I think you and I, particularly here in the West, where we, we tend to be more affluent than other parts of the world, I think this is a part of the Lord's Prayer that if we're not careful, we'll find ourselves breezing through very, very quickly. Because I would argue, if I had to guess, the overwhelming majority of us in this room have probably not dealt with a lifetime of food insecurity. You know, most of us have not, we've, we've been privileged to, to live our lives in such a way that we, we don't really always have to wonder where our next meal is coming from or how we're going to eat on that specific day. But it was on the minds of this first century audience that Jesus was speaking to. Certainly many of you in this room have probably experienced this. You've had food insecurity or have struggled day to day. Man, how are we going to eat and where are we going to get this from? 
And what this passage shows us is that the Lord desires for us to depend on He desires for us to come to him to provide for our daily needs. Uh, my grandfather is 92 years old. He's not doing well right now. He's going to be with the Lord soon. And, um, and, and so he's born in 1930. And so if you know history, uh, my grandfather grew up during the Great Depression. And, and one of the things I always loved about my childhood, and this is extended even as I've had kids, he's told some of this story to, now to my kids, his great-grandkids. Uh, he just lived through a lot of history. You know, he grew up during the Great Depression, and uh, he was a teenager during World War II. He fought in Korea. He was a first sergeant, combat engineer, and then he saw the turbulence of the 60s and the 70s. He's just seen a whole lot of life and, and has a whole lot, lot of stories. But some of my favorite stories to hear him tell when I was growing up that were really perspective-changing for me as a kid were the stories that he used to tell at Christmas time about the Great Depression. And he would talk about, you know, during the Great Depression, as, as, as they got to, to Christmas, like they were lucky most years at Christmas to get maybe a couple of apples or oranges. If they were really lucky, maybe they would get a new pair of socks. And that was just life. That was life. It was daily learning to be dependent on the Lord. And he, he tells these stories of how my great-grandfather, they're poor farmers in rural Alabama, um, he would go, grand, my great-grandfather would go into the cornfields. He'd disappear for periods of a couple of hours. You know, whenever they would have these moments, how, how are we going to pay bills? How are we going to feed our kids? How are we going to survive? How are we going to make it another day? He would disappear into the cornfield for a couple of hours, and then he'd come back out, and he'd wipe big tears out of his eyes, and he'd look his family in the face and say, God is going to provide our needs. Very few of us have ever had to live in that type of dependency. But the reality is, church, whether we know it or not, we are totally dependent on God for every need of every day. And he's a good father who desires to meet the needs of his children. He's teaching us to trust him. This is a really important observation for us to make about this verse. He doesn't teach us to pray, give us tomorrow our daily bread. Let's give us today. Give us today. It's learning to be content with what we have and trusting him to provide us with everything that we need. The Lord is a good father and he cares about our physical needs. That's the first observation. Second observation we can draw from this request is that the Lord wants us to be content with what we have for each day. That This is not an encouragement, and this is an important observation, it's not an encouragement for us to pray for all of our physical wants. It's an encouragement to pray for all of our physical needs. It's learning to live in day-by-day dependence for the Lord to provide. This is the Apostle Paul from 1 Timothy 6, uh, verses 6 through 10. He writes, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. He says, But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Here's a warning. He says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Why? For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Don't don't miss this this morning. There are few things that will suffocate your faith and your relationship with Jesus more than materialism. There are a few things that choke out our affection and our desire for God. I just wonder this morning, I don't want to pry too much, but I want to, want to give a little nudge this morning. I wonder how many of us even struggle to be focused in this room this morning because we're just thinking about stuff. We're thinking about the house, we're thinking about the car, we're thinking about something that we really want that we can't afford. We're thinking about something that we can't afford that we're not using right now because we're in church instead. Just kind of going back and forth with this. Man, the few things can choke out our affections for God more quickly than money and materialism. 
And so by teaching us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, the Lord is teaching us to pray in such a way that we learn to be content with what we have and our hearts can be on guard against the idolatry of money and material things. But then our attention, after we focus on our physical desires, we turn it back to spiritual concerns. So the sixth emphasis then is on confession of our sins. We go to the Lord to to make provision for his people after the physical needs, and then we move into the confession of our sins. We come before the Lord, forgive us our debts. We pray this because sin has put us in spiritual debt to God. We're in debt to God when we sin. And so I hope you understand this morning, if, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, first, we're really glad that you're here. We're really, really glad that you're here and really glad that you would at least be willing to open your eyes and your ears and hear these things this morning. But understand, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if your faith is not in Jesus Christ, you are in debt to God for your sin. And this is a debt that you cannot pay on your own. You cannot pay this on your own. No amount of good works, no amount of good deeds, no amount of of charity work, no, no amount of money that you give, nothing can resolve this debt on your own. That's the bad news. But the good news of the gospel is that through Jesus Christ, our debts can be forgiven. God doesn't just demand our perfection. He doesn't just demand that we pay this price that we ourselves can't pay. No, God in his love has paid the price for us. He sent his son Jesus so that we could be forgiven. These were the final words of Jesus from the cross. As he hung on the cross, as he breathed his last, and he gave up his spirit, he prays out to his father, he cries, it is finished. The word that Jesus used there was to die. It was a legal term that was usually stamped in an abbreviated form on a bill of sale. And what it indicated was that the debt had been paid in full. That was the declaration Jesus was making on Golgotha. The debt of sinners has been paid when they call on my name in faith. You call on Jesus Christ in faith. Your debt will be canceled and cleared. The reality is somebody's going to pay the debt for your sin. Your question is, who's it going to be? Is it going to be you or is it going to be Jesus? Because we're either going to, it's either going to be paid through faith in Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished for us, or it's going to be paid with our lives when we stand before God face to face. Jesus is satisfied. He has canceled the debt of our sin, and we receive his salvation freely through faith in his name. So as followers of Jesus, we're totally forgiven of all sin, past and present and future. But the reality is, in our lives, because of the ongoing presence of sin, you and I will never attain sinless perfection in this life. That's why Jesus teaches us to pray this. Even though we cannot lose our salvation, God's word says that that's something that he started in us and will bring to completion in us. It can't be lost. So once we're in Christ, we can't be no longer in Christ. So, so understand, like there's, it's, it's not that you, you can be saved and then because of your sin you, you fall back out. No. no. No, Jesus has promised that all the Father has given him will come to him and he's not going to lose a single one. Your salvation is not predicated on your ability to hold on to God. It's predicated on his ability to hold on to you and he's not going to let you go. He's holding on to us. And so we live in this confidence, but yet because of the ongoing presence and pattern of sin in our lives, we still have these lapses in our life. And so he teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts. We do this because that means that he's eager to forgive. We do this with confidence. Jesus would not teach us to do these things if the Father didn't want to forgive us. And what we have to be ongoing, day by day, as followers of Jesus, moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, we should be eager to come to the Lord in confession whenever we fall into sin because our Father's eager to forgive I mentioned Martin Luther uh, last week. He did the 505th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. 
And, and this was the first of his five 95 theses that, that he made known to the Catholic Church. He said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Here is why you should be so eager, so eager to come to the Lord in confession and repentance. The fact that Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our sins, shows us that we have a Father who wants to forgive. He's eager to forgive. Jesus wouldn't tell us to ask for forgiveness if forgiveness was something the Father didn't want us to have, and he wants us to have it. This is the assurance of pardon we have from 1 John 1, 9 and 10. The Holy Spirit right, gives us these words through, through the Apostle John. If we confess our sins, who is he, church? He is what? He's faithful and what? He's just. And what will he do? Forgive us of our sins, and he'll cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If we'll come to him in honesty and confession and repentance, that's what we're going to receive in return. But here's the other side of that. John warns, if we say we haven't sinned, if we're just going to pretend like no big deal, nothing's going on with me, he says that we make him a liar. We make God a liar. We call God a liar if we say that we haven't sinned. And it says his word is not in us. If we deny that we've sinned, we call God a liar and we prove his word isn't in us. And so what should we do? We, we should be quick to confess the things that God already knows about us. It's not like we're hiding something from him. It's not like you're gonna come to him with a way you've really messed up the last couple weeks and he's gonna be like, what? I had no idea. Didn't see that I was busy that day. How'd I miss this? Like he's, he's not gonna be caught off guard. He invites us to come to him in confession and repentance. And when we come, he's eager to forgive. But we don't just ask for forgiveness for our sin against God. We do this as we forgive those who sin against us. So the seventh emphasis is on the realization of our forgiveness. He teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And the way that we can be people who have forgiving hearts, who are eager to forgive those who have sinned against us, is for us to understand the heart of our Father who's eager to forgive us when we've sinned against him. And so it's from that foundation of the forgiveness that we've received from our Father, that's where we get the resources then to forgive others in the ways that they've sinned against us. This is why we should be eager to forgive others. We're eager to forgive others because our Father's eager to forgive us. Listen, it is the height of hypocrisy for us to expect forgiveness for our sins against God whenever we withhold forgiveness from those who have sinned against us. It's a total disconnect of the gospel. But Jesus goes on to give a heavy warning in verses 14 through 15. At the end of the Lord's Prayer, he says this. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, here's what that means. For you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, we've been justified by his grace. Again, salvation cannot be lost. We are forgiven of our sin. And yet, as we continue to sin, as we continue to have lapses, what starts to happen over time is we start to withhold forgiveness from others. Whenever we come to the Father in prayer, our prayers start to be hindered. And so listen, I want to press into this a little bit this morning. If you're the type of person who's saying, man, I'm, I'm really struggling with prayer. It feels, I feel disconnected. doesn't seem to be fruitful. doesn't seem to be helpful. I just want to challenge you to examine your heart in a couple of different areas. First, have you understood the miracle that God is your father? We looked at that a few moments ago. Second, are there any unconfessed patterns of sin in your life? 
Are there things that you have suppressed and just said, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm going to deal with that by not dealing with that? Are you, are you passively giving in to sin in your life? But the third question would be, are you withholding forgiveness from someone else? Because all of these things start to become walls in our relationship with the Father. All of these things start to hinder the, the, the experience of intimacy that we have with him. If you are struggling in your prayer, th- those are good places to start. But what sin have I left unchecked in my life, and am I withholding forgiveness from someone who needs to be forgiven? This is uh, from John Stott, a good reflection here on this passage. He writes, Once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. If, on the other hand, we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of others, it proves that we have minimized our own. A few weeks ago, there was a 17-year-old high school student named Elijah DeWitt who was shot and killed uh, by two other teenagers while he was with a group of friends at a mall uh, near Atlanta. And a standout high school football player, he was starting to get attention from Division I schools. And um, two days later, his father, Craig, there was a lot of public outcry about this. It became, it became a, a racial controversy in, in this particular community especially and, and was really just exploding publicly. And, and two days later, his father, Craig, was interviewed, and this is what he said. As all this outcry was going on, he said, you know, we don't know the kids. We don't know their background. We don't know their story. He says, but for me, they're forgiven. And he publicly forgave the two teenage boys who took the life of his son. You know, as followers of Jesus Christ, that, that should move us. We should understand that. We, we should understand that because that's, that's what the Father has done for us. He forgives those who caused grave offense against his, his son. And so a lot of the comments, as I'm following the social media stories, a lot of the comments man, were, were very affirming, very encouraging. People just amazed at this Father, his strength and his humility and his willingness to forgive. And yet at the same time, there were other people who felt a little bit differently. Now I'm going to read some of the other comments that were found in some of the stories. But this is what really breaks my heart. The people who said these things, if you go to their bio, that they've got the word Christian in their bio. They've got a Bible verse in their bio. that They've got some Christian song lyric in, in their bio. And this is what some of these people had to say about this father's actions. They said, that's not strength, that's weakness. He's afraid. They aren't kids, they're men, and they don't deserve forgiveness. Somebody else said, this is fake. If that was a real man or a real father, there would be no forgiveness here. Now follow me here for just a second. A story of a father who forgives the people who took the life of his son. Where have we heard that one before? That this sounds awfully familiar. And and yet you've got a group of professing Christians who basically say, no way. Understand, that's no follower of Christ. Put Christian in your bio all day long, you're not saved, you don't know Jesus. You don't, because that is the antithesis of the gospel. That's the opposite of the gospel. The gospel tells us that our Father has extended forgiveness to us, maybe even when we didn't want forgiveness. Like when we were running from him, we certainly didn't deserve it, and yet in his love, he continues to extend forgiveness. Understand, it's not that forgive, like forgiving people doesn't mean they're not accountable for their actions. It doesn't mean there's no consequences for sin. It doesn't mean all the hurt that they've caused is immediately going to go away. It doesn't mean that you don't still put up boundaries in your life. I'm not saying those things this morning, but this is what forgiveness is. When we forgive others, it's like unlocking the door of a prison cell and realizing that you've been the one in chains. And all along, you've been holding the key that could have set you free. And that key is forgiveness. 
But we're never more like our Father when we forgive. We're never less like our Father when we don't. So we ask the Lord to provide for our physical needs. Give us this day our daily bread, but then we also have him to provide our spiritual needs. Forgive us our debts and help us as we strive to forgive others. And listen, I don't want to skirt past this this morning. Every single person in this room, we could go around this room and we wouldn't make it through the day. Story after story after story of of horrible things that people have done to you and to me and to everyone else. This is not to minimize that in any way, shape, or form. We don't minimize this in any way, shape, or form. And so we have to understand, I know for some of us in this room today, forgiveness feels impossible. But let's not remember, there was a point in time when forgiveness for us was impossible. But God made a way. He made a way for us to be saved. And the only way you are ever going to have the resources to forgive others is to understand the forgiveness that your Father has given to you. So we pray for our physical need, which is food, but then we pray for our greatest spiritual need, which is forgiveness. And last, we ask him for guidance every step of the way. The eighth and final emphasis that Jesus gives us here is protection from the enemy. He teaches us, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So we pray, eighth, for protection from the enemy. I hope we'll understand this morning that true repentance is not just being sorry for the things that we did. When we come to the Lord asking for forgiveness, it's not because we want the slate wiped clean so we can go live our lives however we want the rest of the week. Listen, if that's your version of Christianity, if your version of Christianity is I ask forgiveness on Sunday and then I do what I want Monday through Saturday, uh, friend, you don't know the gospel. You're not saved. That's the, that's the opposite of Christian. We don't take God's grace for granted in this way. We don't take grace to mean I can live my life however I want and God is obligated to forgive. That's, that's not what we do. True repentance, it, it's not just being sorry. It's not just wanting the slate wiped clean for a couple days so we don't have to live with guilt. True repentance is a turning from our sins. It's a ceasing from our sins. That's what the word means at its foundation. Repent means to turn. We don't just want forgiveness of our sins so that we can escape hell. No, we desire by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to walk in the righteousness that God requires. We desire to walk away from temptation. So what are we praying every single day? We're praying, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help me to put to death the deeds of my flesh. By the power of your Holy Spirit, help me to walk in the righteousness and the holiness and the way that you've prepared for me to go. Father, help me to love what you love and to hate what you hate. Help me to love your holiness and your righteousness and your justice. Help me to hate sin and wickedness and injustice. Make my heart like yours. That's what we're doing. Lead me away from these things. Take me away from the things that would take me away from you. So so as we look through scripture, we do see that God allows us to be tested, but it's never God himself who tempts us. That's why we pray, lead us away from temptation. James shows it like this. There are times God allows us to be tested. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So God does test us with trials, but he does not tempt us with sin. That's what James shows us just a few verses later, James 1.13. He says, let no one say, when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God himself cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. God will lead us into test. He'll allow us to experience test, but he himself never leads us into temptation. And so we pray, Lord, lead us away from temptation. And we pray this because God has promised in his word that he will do it. 
Psalm 23 is a lot like the Lord's Prayer. It's one of those psalms, it's one of those verses that we can just kind of read repetitiously without giving a whole lot of thought because we've memorized it and we've heard it a hundred times. Why does Jesus tell us to make this provision, this petition? It's because God has asked us to do it. This is the promise of Psalm 23. What does the Lord do for us? Our good shepherd, our father, what does he do for us? David writes that he leads us in the paths of righteousness. And why does he do it? For whose name's sake? For his name's sake. Doesn't do it for our name's sake. He's not doing it for our name. He's not doing it for our honor. He's not doing it for our glory. He's doing it for his. This is such good news for us. God is more committed to our sanctification than we are. God is more committed to you becoming like him than you are. He's more committed to it than we are. And the reason he's more committed is because he is ultimately, above all else, committed to his glory. Because he's committed to his glory, he's going to lead you on the path of righteousness. This is what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1. He, he says that our God, who started the good work within us, Philippians 1.6, he says he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God has staked his name on your salvation. This is such good news for you. He has staked his name on your salvation. He has put his name, his honor, his reputation on the line, not just for your salvation, but your sanctification and seeing you through to the very, very end. This is the best news. And he does it for his name's sake. Because he's passionate for his glory, because he is serious about the reputation of his name, we can be confident he's going to see us through to the very, very end. This is what Jesus teaches us to pray. Now, uh, historically, Christians have closed the Lord's Prayer with a doxology uh, that goes like this. For, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, if you're not familiar, you might look down your Bible and be like, I don't see that part there. And the reason is because it's not actually part of what Jesus taught us to pray. Uh, this is something that Christians have historically used as a, as a benediction and a doxology. Now, uh, it doesn't make it wrong because uh, God has shown us in his word that, that he desires these things. This benediction, it's drawn from 1 Chronicles chapter 29, 11. This is the verse that shapes that doxology that we pray at the end of, uh, of the prayer. And 1 Chronicles 29, 11 says this, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the kingdom and of all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. So it's a fitting benediction because 1 Chronicles 29 is still the word of God and it's a summary of what Jesus taught us to pray. That's why that's there. Just very quickly, that's why that's there. So let's wrap this up this morning. Our Father knows what we need. He knows what we need before we ask. And he delights to give us what we ask for when we ask for the right things. And the Lord's Prayer shows us both what we need and what we should ask for. It answers these questions. So, so, so what do we need? What do we need? We need God to get his glory. Because God being devoted to his glory means that he is devoted to his love for us. We need God to get his glory, so what do we pray? Hallowed be your name. But we need God's kingdom to come right here in our lives, through our lives. But we, we need the second coming of Jesus. We, we long for that day. We need his kingdom to come, so we pray for his kingdom to come. 
We pray for his will to be done, so we ask for his will to be done. We need daily bread, so we ask for daily bread. We need forgiveness of our sins, so we ask for forgiveness of our sins. We need to forgive others, so we ask for his help to forgive. He knows what you need before you ask, and he's eager to give you what you ask when you ask for the right thing. So church, I want to give us one very simple application. One very, this is our response for this week, and it's one really simple word. Our response this week is this. Ask. Ask. You listen to all this this morning, you say, what do we do with all this? Ask. That's what you do. Lord, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Give me my needs for today. Will you grant me forgiveness of my sins? Will you help me to forgive others when they sin against me? We ask. He knows what we need before we ask, and he wants to give us what we ask for when we ask for the right things. And those are the right things So ask, we ask. And so as we close this morning, well, let's just pray these words together. Let's just pray them right off the page here from Matthew chapter six, verses nine down through verse 13. Let's go to our Father and let's ask. Our Father in heaven, pray this with me. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And all of God's people said, amen, amen. You bow your heads with me as we prepare for communion this morning. It is through the the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ that we can confidently come before the Father, not as his enemies, but as his children. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, he he will not lose you. He's not going to forsake you. He's going to keep you. He's going to see you through to the end because he has staked his name and his reputation on your salvation and your sanctification and your future glorification. He's not letting you go. His reputation's on the line. But even as followers of Jesus, we can have these lapses. We can struggle in prayer. And so I just want to challenge you to examine your heart this morning. Have you understood who you're praying to? Have you understood that you're praying to your Father who's in heaven? Is there any unconfessed sin in your life? Is there any sin in your life in your heart that you're not dealing with honestly? And that's become a wall between you and the Lord It's keeping you from experiencing the fullness of forgiveness and restoration of that relationship? Are there ways that you are refusing to forgive others? All of these things become a wall in our relationship with the Lord. They hinder us from experiencing the fullness of life in Him. So I just challenge you today to examine your heart, to deal honestly with sin, to ask the Lord to help you forgive in the way that you have been forgiven. Just prepare your heart before we come to the table today. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you you can become one. You no longer have to sit under the weight of your debt of sin. If you're not in Christ, you you owe debt for your sin and you can't pay it on your own. But God, through giving his son Jesus Christ, has made it possible for your debt to be paid. So you can call today on his name and faith. You can repent of your sin. You can turn from your sin, lay down your sin. God will give you a new heart. He'll give you new desires. He'll give you new life. As you turn, he'll help you walk in, in the perfect righteousness and holiness that he's placed before you. 
So Father, we come to you asking as you've called us to ask. Lord, above all else, we want to see your name exalted in the nations. God, we want to see you glorified in the mouth of every man, woman, and child from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Lord, we long for your kingdom to come. Right now, as we walk in obedience, as we live out the vision that Jesus has laid before us, we long for the day that you're coming for us. You're coming for your church. We long for the day that you're going to make all things new, when death will be no more and tears will be wiped from our eyes, where there will be no more graves, there will be no more cemeteries, there will be no more sickness, there will be no more illness, there will be no more cancer, there will be no more death. Lord, we long for this day. So we, we pray, come, Lord Jesus. We want your will to be done. Help us to submit our lives to your word, that your will would be accomplished to us. Help us to live in submission to what you're working in eternity and working out through history. Father, will you provide our needs? Help us to trust in you. To give us what we need for today and trust that you'll also give us what we need for tomorrow. But forgive us when we fail. Forgive us when we fall. Forgive us when we turn our backs against your word, when we rebel against you, when we fall into patterns of sin, and when we step off of the path of righteousness that you are leading us on. Lord, forgive us and help us to forgive. As others cause us harm, as they cause us pain, as they wound us, help us to remember that we harmed you, that we wounded you, that we caused your son pain and yet you forgave us. So give us the resources to forgive. So Father, be glorified, be exalted. Make your name great in our hearts and in our homes, in this church, in our community, in this world. We wanna see Jesus lifted high and exalted. We ask all these things in his name, and everyone said, amen, amen.